In my household, um, this week, actually, Friday, we just finished uh, the last of our birthdays. So from the 3rd of January all the way to March 23 um, is five birthdays for us. It's all top-heavy of the year, and you get through it, and you get to relax for the rest of the year, not having to worry about it. The one thing I've learned in this, this lot of birthday years is as my kids are growing up older and older, is um, they want more responsibility, and they'll often take responsibility without you giving it to them, because that's just how humans work. They want to be less dependent upon me and Natasha. And it's a struggle as a parent. You don't always know the boundaries uh, to let certain responsibility happen or to not give it to them. But what we do know is they need to learn responsibility if they want more of it. And as the age-old saying goes, be faithful in the little if you'd like to get more. And it's a hard thing as parents. It's a good thing as parents because you do want independent kids. You want them to grow up and, and actually be their own people who make wise choices and love Jesus and follow him and all that. And so we're learning that very much at the moment with uh, an eight-year-old, a five-year-old, and a four-year-old. But, as I was thinking about this, I realized this whole idea of growing up to be more responsible, do you know, it's actually the very opposite in the kingdom of God. The more you grow, the more dependent you become upon Jesus. We don't become better and better so that we need Jesus less and less in the kingdom of God. It works the other way. Which begs the question, what sort of kingdom is this? And that's exactly the title of today's talk from the passage we've had read out to us by Sharon before. What sort of kingdom is this? It's actually the most extraordinary, transformative kingdom you could ever imagine or be a part of. You see, it isn't curtailing of freedom to say you need to be more dependent upon Jesus the more you grow. Actually, God in his kindness in his kingdom defines freedom for us. And the foundation of that, if nothing else, is it's freedom from sin. And that opens up a very broad way of living. You see, in a world that prizes independence and freedom as the ultimate God, it's really refreshing to know that in the kingdom of God, you're not left to carve out your own ideas of greatness or goodness or what life is. But Jesus gives it to you. He gives you an already prepared life. Which is why the trick is, the trouble is, we need to keep our eyes fixed upon Jesus. Because what sort of kingdom is this? Well, it's one that is actually dependent upon our king every single step of the way, all the way to the end. And we'll see that today in three ways. Firstly, that greatness is serving. Secondly, grace is always there when we fail. But thirdly, there's a guarantee as well that the world will sometimes be hostile to you for belonging to it. So don't be surprised. Greatness is serving, grace is there when you fail, and there's a guarantee that it's going to be hostile. So I wonder, what would it look like for you this morning and this week and maybe for the rest of your life to live in this very upside-down kingdom? And the big idea to take away from today is simply this, that... Look to your king. Look to your king. So we'll take each of those in three parts and then finish uh, summarizing what that means. The first thing we see is in the first, uh, first few verses, 24 to 30. Uh, this is a kingdom. What sort of kingdom? It's a kingdom where greatness is serving. Some businesses, maybe you've been part of one in your working life, seem to have cultural issues that keep cropping up from time to time. 
you don't always see them when you first walk in, but they bubble under the surface. They're just there. They're the temperature below what's going on. And after you've been there for about three minutes, you start to realize what the actual culture of a place is. It might be that um, the business says they'd really love their employees and listen to them, but on the floor when you do the work, you realize that actually they don't care about me. At the moment, I think we're all really sensitive to what's happening in Canberra and some of uh, the high schools in the country that every day seems to be coming up with more cases of different sorts of abuse that have been happening. There's an ingrained culture in these institutions that seems to be there. It's not obvious, but it's bubbling under the surface, right? I wonder what you'd say the culture of Jesus' disciples are. What's, what's their underlying culture? What it's been like for them for three years, night and day, walking and traveling with Jesus? Well, I think the underlying temperature is one about arguing who's the best. Over in Mark chapter 9 and in Matthew chapter 18 and Matthew chapter 23 and Luke 22, the disciples seem to just every now and then it bubbles up and one of them says, I'm better than you. And the other one says, well, that's not true. And then another one says, well, what about me? And then on and on it goes. Recall in our passage today, Jesus has just explained, actually last week, sorry, he's just explained, one of you will deny me. Luke 22, verse 23. They began to question among themselves who it might be. And then verse 24, straight away a dispute arose about who was considered to be the greatest it takes you back how do you get from saying jesus one of you is going to deny me and then all of a sudden they're saying well i'm the best how does that happen but just think of it this way you deny and you appeal and you repeat that you deny and you appeal and you deny and you appeal it goes like this i would never do that because i've done this yes but i would never do that because i've done this Yes, but haven't you done that? Yes, but I've done this. And so we get our inner lawyer out and we start to argue the case that we are better than someone else. And very quickly, it's erupted into this argument about someone is better than me. Because when our own greatness comes into contact with someone else's greatness, there's always conflict. Because sin wants to be great. And when your kingdom of self bumps into someone else's kingdom of self, there can only be one master and ruler and often there's conflict and we argue because we want to be the greatest and that's exactly what's happening here deny it appeal it deny it appeal it it's an ugly scene of how the human heart works and jesus steps in reminding them that greatness is found in a different way in his kingdom verse 25 jesus said to them the kings of the gentiles lord over them And those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. Team, this is how my kingdom works. Not like everything else you see. It's not about taking advantage of someone else to get up the ladder. It's not about your cleverness or your position in life that's going to make you so good. It's not the mindset of I won and that person lost. And then we see the first of four buts in this passage. There are four of them, four buts. They will help explain what the kingdom of God's like. And Jesus says in verse 26, but you are not to be like that. 
Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who's at the table? But I'm among you as one who serves. Now remember, of course, they're sitting at a table. They're having a meal. In a culture that's very strong on hierarchy and serving others, it's a bit demeaning to serve. And the second but is here as well. Jesus says, but I am among you as one who serves. Literally, it means waiting tables. Think of the hospitality sector, a whole sector in our society built upon the idea of serving others exceptional food and wine and friendliness. Jesus came into the hospitality field. And he flipped it by doing that. Because normally, the one at the table is greater. But Jesus is the greatest and he's serving others. His own ministry is bringing relief for the least, the last, and the lost. This week, uh, Edward, who's on the screen there, um, got a peer leader badge at school. He's in year one and they have peer leaders. And it just means he's the class representative, he's the example to go to when you have questions. Kind of like a modern day SRC, if you remember that from your school days. And uh, I said to him, I said, Eddie, great, you've got it. Um, But... The badge comes with responsibility. It's a heavy badge. It's a heavy badge. Because you have to serve others now. Whereas before, you could do what you like, but now you have responsibility to serve the people in your class, not only to be an example, but to actually care for them in a way that you probably never thought of before. I was trying to get him to see that the more responsibility you have, actually the more serving you need to have at the same time. Which is what Jesus says here, isn't it? He says, the greatest among you... And the one who rules. You see, it's not a problem to have great people or positions in the Christian community. We don't have a theology of poverty or anything. Verse 28, in fact, will tell us that Jesus knows they've stood by him and there's going to be a reward. Jesus sees them. Jesus sees the effort that you put in. Jesus sees your life. He knows all about you. If no one else sees you, Jesus does. And we need, actually, great Christian thinkers and great Christian people in this world. How many of us have benefited from a blog that we've read or from a talk from another pastor in another church and somewhere in the world and been encouraged? How many books have we read that have encouraged us to motivate us to godliness and faith? How many wonderful thinkers and theologians have defended the faith and defined terms and we stand upon their shoulders? We need great thinkers and people in the Christian community. That's fine, as long as... They and we use the position differently, full of serving, even though they're great. Because the way of Jesus is lowliness and humility. We read this at communion often. It's the pattern of him. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Mark ten forty five. Greatness isn't wrong. Except God refuses to define greatness in terms of my own self-promotion. The Christian life is the call to abandon ourselves in the service of others, just like Christ has laid down his life for us. And in doing that, Jesus makes you great. Look at verse 28. You've stood by me in all my trials, guys. Verse 29, I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Team, I'll make you great. 
Don't argue. God's got it. I'll make you great in the same vein that God has made me great. Not only is he going to do it, but it's actually future-looking too. Did you get that? There's not a table or a throne in this life that Christians will sit around that is so great and wonderful like that. Greatness then is a seat with God at the table where meals are had, where ruling takes place. It's sitting down with Jesus, serving like Jesus, seeing people the way Jesus does. Sitting on thrones is not a holiday. There's a throne in Handorf, uh, one of the pubs there. You may have seen it. It's been there for a long time. And my kids love it when we go there, and I love it too, to be honest. But they run up to it, and they're sitting there because it's a throne, and it's just this wonderful moment of, I'm on this big leather throne with studded work. And this isn't the throne that was... It's not an enjoyable holiday rule, is the point. But you know me, we won't judge the 12 tribes of Israel or anything like that. That's unique to the disciples. But we do get a seat at the table. We do reign with Christ. And that's the ultimate goal of Jesus' work, right? Not just saving sinners, but transforming us to be rulers with him like God intended. Servants of Jesus. So greatness is flipped upside down in his kingdom. A value change has taken place. Christianity says the way to... The way up is down, the way to true power is serving, and that's how Jesus saved the world to change our life. So, greatness is serving, and it's a kingdom that says weakness, exclusion, temptation, it will find us, because that's the one we live in. But, when it comes to us, and we fail, don't worry, don't worry, because your king is full of restorative grace, 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, Satan's asked me to sift you as wheat. But I prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you've turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to prison and to to death. Jesus answered, "I, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. We've got a very active Satan at the moment, don't we? The last few days of Jesus' life. Stopping him going to the cross, of course. Conflict for Jesus in the garden, we'll see a bit later. But not just for Jesus, but his followers too. All of you, he says. Peter, I'm talking to you, but all of you are going to be sifted like wheat. Notice that with, same with Job in the story of the Old Testament. Satan has to ask God permission to do things. Which is very confronting, because the question is, what's God up to if he says yes? Suffering, Satan, conflict, evil... It's not the end in Jesus' story, you see. He's saying to his disciples, I know it's going to be hard for you. I know it's going to be harder for you, Peter, in fact. Being sifted is like being violently shaken to get the good grain and the bad grain separated. But notice how it plays out. The third but's here. But, what does Jesus do? I've prayed for you. He's prayed that Peter won't be destroyed in that moment. And that when you've turned back pointing to a future restoration. Three times, Peter will deny Jesus, right? But this is a temporary failure. Not a a total failure like Judas. It's a temporary one. Christian, we'll fail. You and me, we will fail in this life. Our faith will shrivel up at times. But God's grace is there to pick us back up again. Because it's not not about how amazing you are. It's how gracious God is. 
Because the kingdom of God says there's life on the other side of denial. What does he say to Peter? Peter, you're going to deny me. I pray for you. And then strengthen your brothers. Restoration in God's kingdom is turning back and going forward in a new direction. And even the best of us keep sinning. Even great Christians keep on sinning. It's incredible. Jesus doesn't say, Peter, you messed up. That's enough. Thanks so much. Take a seat. I'll let someone else handle it from here. I'll forgive you, but really, you just have to stop. Peter is a trophy of God's grace, like you and me. Elon Musk is trying very hard to get to Mars, if you've been watching what's going on, and he's sent lots of rockets up and down, which is really wonderful and incredible. They can self-land and everything. Every now and then it blows up and he's wasted one, but um, a rocket, the point is a rocket needs a launch pad, right, for it to get up and get back down. Launch pad, landing pad. One of the kids' storybooks at home, they talk about space rockets and say, what, what does the rocket need to launch into space? A launch pad. Um, but God's launch pad in our life isn't our great faith, isn't our perfect record or incredible courage or history. It's our weakness. Luther said that God made man out of nothing, and as long as we're nothing, he can make something out of us. Peter needs to know, I need to know, that the brokenness in me forms the backdrop to God's restorative grace and beauty. Peter's not there yet. He's too, still a bit too fixated on himself because look at his reply. You'll deny me. Oh, no, I won't. It's the fourth part. You deny me, but uh, I won't. But I won't. You've got this peering into Peter's heart right here. You see... His identity is not in Jesus' love for him, but his love for Jesus. It's not Jesus' love for him that's shaping him, it's his love for Jesus. Because you see the results later on. When they get to the garden and, and Judas comes back, there's a famous scene, Peter gets a sword, and what does he do to the high priest's servant? He boop, cuts off his ear. Why the ear? I haven't figured that out yet, but he cuts off the ear. Why does he do that? He's threatened. In that moment, his whole faith is threatened and shaky. Someone's threatened Jesus, therefore he's threatened too, so he lashes out in anger. His self-worth is not built upon Jesus' love for him, but on his love for Jesus. And Jesus tells him this because Jesus wants to restore him. Over in John's Gospel, John's at the table at this time, at this meal, maybe he's thinking of back of Peter, As he writes this many years later, he says, My dear children, I write this to you that so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, don't worry. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is a kingdom filled with grace upon grace when we sin and deny and fail. Where greatness is serving and it's a kingdom that has opposition to it. Look at the next part. Without even thinking... In verse 35, then Jesus asked them, Team, when I sent you without a purse or bag or sandals, did you lack anything? Oh, nothing, they replied. He said to them, Oh, but now if you have a purse, take it. A bag, take it. If you don't have a sword, sell your cloak, buy one. It's written, he was numbered with the transgressors. And I tell you the truth, this must be fulfilled in me. 
Yes, what is written about me is reaching its fulfillment. And in verse 38, the disciples said, Lord, see, we have two swords. That's enough. That's enough, he replied. In the past, Jesus sent them out for a very short, temporary, quick mission trip. And they were provided with everything they needed. He said, don't take anything. I'll provide, people will provide for you. Now, a few years later, he says, you're going to minister to a hostile world. Take everything you could possibly need. Ministry is taking place in opposition and distress and pain. The point, don't expect it to be luxurious. Peter, who we just saw, actually wrote these words a few years later. Maybe he too was thinking upon this Last Supper when he said, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that's come to you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. A culture that isn't Christian shouldn't be a shock. Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't think it's strange when people malign you, ignore you, or politely hate you. Why? Well, because the suffering of Jesus saves us. Suffering for Jesus not only shows we belong to him, but purifies us. Because in the kingdom of God, a strange kingdom that it is, suffering isn't the end. It's not shameful. Settle that suffering isn't strange. But do be prepared, though. Jesus fulfills Isaiah 53 here. He says, I'm numbered with the transgressors. He not only identifies with evil and suffering, but they think he's evil. Do you see? Life gets harder for Jesus and his disciples. They even think he's the evil one. Today, it's more likely that people will think the Christians are the evil ones, the closed-minded, the narrow-minded ones at times. Sadly, though, the disciples simply thought this was about having some weapons, two swords. And they missed the point completely when Jesus says that's enough. Because it's about being prepared inwardly, not outwardly. You don't need a sword, he says, you just need a saviour. And as the saviour suffered for you, be prepared that you're probably going to suffer for him too. And with that, with that meal ended, the upper room meal, they walk into Good Friday. They walk into Good Friday, and we're going to be here on Friday next week to unpack that, and Sunday as well. But for now, as we finish the last discussion he has with his disciples before the cross, what sort of kingdom is this? It's a kingdom where greatness is serving. It's a kingdom where grace is there when you fail. It's a kingdom there's a guarantee that people will be hostile for you belonging to it. But that's okay, because we look to our king. So as we close, I have three reminders of who Jesus is. And maybe you would see yourself in one of the disciples today. Maybe you would feel your own shortcomings and self-centeredness perhaps. And maybe you would then look to Jesus too. Recap, the disciples are sitting around having a meal. It's the Last Supper. They've been told of a new covenant in Jesus, body and blood, how it's all going to happen, and one of their own is going to betray him. So they soon wander off into an ugly debate of self-promotion, arguing who's the best. But Jesus says, um, greatness is serving, like he serves us. He left behind the place he belongs to come and serve on the cross, giving us the example for our communities and the power for us to live this way by his spirit. Peter journeys into self-fixation, thinking he'd never fail Jesus. Of course I wouldn't. 
Jesus humbles him by saying, um, Peter, you will, but don't worry. My grace is restorative. And even when you fail, I'm interceding for you. And then all 11 of them hurry full speed down the path of self-sufficiency, thinking they're equipped for the kingdom because they've got two swords. A pitiful attempt if Jesus really is talking about creating an army by any means. But he reminds them the point isn't swords, but times changing, expect hostility. He's considered the evil one. And that their journey in life should be one of being prepared for a hostile world because of their relationship with him. And in all three of them, he's gently correcting his followers, encouraging them, reminding them about how he's operating in their life as the king of a new covenant. And each answer to self-promotion, self-fixation, self-sufficiency is to look to Jesus. For the inexperienced disciples, the more they grow, like my kids, flip it, the more they need Jesus, the more they grow. We don't become better and better, so we need God less and less. So we go into your week looking to Jesus. And as you do, there's no over-coffee question this week. I couldn't think of one that was helpful enough. Rather, can you identify any self-promoting, self-fixating or self-sufficient behaviors like the people we've seen here? And how might looking to Jesus be the solution to that this week? Let's pray. Our great God, I just want to celebrate that you serve us. You're full of grace and forgiveness. And that you guarantee not an easy, relaxing life, but a a good, fulfilled life, even though there's hostility. And Jesus, you put us on that path, and as we grow and walk and journey in the path of life, may we never take our eyes off you. Father, John the Baptist once said, you must become greater and I must become less. May we say that genuinely, not pridefully, but with the desire... Father God, to love, seek, serve, and honor you all the days of our life. And that we be a community that does that and reflects that to those around us. So Lord, may we look to you this week in all the ups and downs. And may your grace just come to us when we sin and fail. Because you're a restorative God. So thank you, Jesus, for your grace and kindness to us. In your name we pray. Amen.